What is crack-a-lacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Damp Valley, coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Bromo this time. Have a solo mailbag for you on this Friday, mostly because we're not supposed to have a podcast at all this week. I am, as we mentioned on the Hardwood Knox account, at Hardwood Knox, go follow us. I am in health and safety protocols. I tested positive for COVID on Wednesday morning after a very, very, very rough Tuesday, I'm doing well for anyone who cares. And there were people who shouted me out so or wished me well. So I appreciate that. I cannot sleep, though, on this. It's very early Friday morning now, like five something. Couldn't fall asleep. So figured, why not get to the, the mailbag that we sent out, sent out the solicitation for earlier in the week? I'm kind of anky, very fatigued. Going to try and get through as many questions as possible. So let's not waste any more time on that. I just felt weird not having a podcast for an entire like full-on work week. I don't think that's ever happened over the past half decade or anything, and it will not happen under our watch to start 2022, apparently. Before we get started, though, just a reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify has a rating system now. Whether you use iTunes or not, as long as you have access to it, we ask that you go there, throw us a five-star rating, write a review. Those help us out a ton. Even if you have advice, suggestions, criticism, someone asks us to shorten our intros, we are going to focus on that moving forward. This podcast, maybe notwithstanding, although I'll try and keep it sub 2.5 minutes. Um, that helps us out a ton, though. Retweet our promos. Tell your friends, family members, random people that you work with or on social media, anyone who you know enjoys basketball, tell them you know of a sub-mediocre NBA podcast that tries to have some fun while being semi-serious, but not really serious at all because basketball and hoops in general at large are just awesome and fun and entertaining and don't always need to be taken seriously, although sometimes they do. Anyway, I digress. Remember to follow us on Twitter, as I mentioned, at Hardware Knox. Follow our YouTube channel. We have like 800 subscribers now. We'd like to get that to 1,000. So YouTube.com, search Hardware Knox. We will come up. We are on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. With all that out of the way, let's dive headfirst into this mailbag. We'll begin with the NBA chicken, a uh, frequent question asker. They ask, how much longer until Portland makes a decision regarding blowing it up or making a major move? This trade deadline, next season, outside of CJ for Ben Simmons, I'm not sure what other move makes sense. I would say we've been here before, but, they've, but they're nearly at the bottom of the West now. Yeah, they're in this weird situation. I think with Portland specifically, Neil Shea, before he was fired, deserved a ton of criticism, even though they experienced some success under his tenure on the basketball court, specifically anyway. I think I liked a lot of his moves that he made on their own. Norm Powell for Gary Trent Jr. I feel like that ended up being a win-win for both teams, to be honest with you. I liked Larry Nance Jr. trade. I liked Robert Covington trade at the time, but they never really went for it. It was always sort of these, not moves on the margins, but these like half significant moves where if they were stars that came out of the market, you never saw them go all in, maybe because they were too market aware, self-aware, knowing that they weren't going to keep these guys. If it was a Kawhi Leonard, if it was a Paul George, if it was a if it was a Jimmy Butler. But knowing how good Dame has been for for quite some time, they really did fail to tr- kind of make that all-in move, whatever it was. And a lot of people point to a wing, but it might have been a different type of big other than Yusuf Nurkic at some point. It became pretty clear early on that you were going to be capped without the infusion of another player when looking at a CG McCollum or Damian uh, and Damian Lillard backcourt. I'm not, I, I'm not even sure that you needed to break it up, but it's probably something that needed to be explored more seriously before now. This season specifically, I would be 
mildly to moderately shocked if they move a CJ McCollum. They're not moving Dame. Let's just let's get beyond there. If they move a Norman Powell or a CJ McCollum, part of that is I don't know how much influence or authority Joe Cronin has as an interim GM, even though he's been with the organization for a while and will probably be in the running, we assume, for that top job this offseason. I'm just not sure if they're going to give him the license to make such a, a wholesale decision when you are so far out of the Western Conference contention picture right now. Chauncey Billups has talked about maybe shutting Dame down for an extensive period of time so he can uh, heal up from that abdominal injury that has apparently bothered him for years at this point. If you're going that route, I think what you're probably going to see them do is hold serve and maybe look at shopping their soon-to-be free agents. I'd be a little bit surprised if Anthony Simons was among them. He's having a great year, and I don't know that they need to fear his restricted free agency necessarily. They have the leverage to match, and I, I just I look at the cap space landscape and the teams that are slated to have the most. I don't know that any of them are going to go give Simons this huge offer. If you don't want to pay him, there are probably sign and trade scenarios that will be open to you and it'll be easier to capitalize on his departure when he's a larger outgoing salary. That leaves Nurkic and uh, Robert Covington, uh, to me, as the most likely players to be moved. I don't know what you can get for Nurkic. The big man market is so saturated, even though there are some teams like a, you know everyone's going to mention Charlotte. That, that could use a center. I don't know that he necessarily, he definitely doesn't fit in Charlotte to me. It's just someone who isn't necessarily going to run the floor with them. And I don't know that he improves their defense at all, even if they are playing drop coverage, but he is, he is a good player. He can make a lot of passes in the short roll from a standstill. He's improved his finishing around the rim. He has those little flip shots. And again, I think he can work uh, better than a lot of other bigs. If you're going to put him into drop, the Portland has just tried to be a lot more aggressive in the pick and roll this year, which has kind of hurt him. Rocco, we've seen his shooting really regressed this season. Maybe he picks it up on a better team. Um, he's played a little bit better since he was demoted from the starting five. Uh, I still think he can bring you some solid team defense and he fits the three and D concept, which teams are naturally going to want a trade that I had proposed um, or that I just filed about. So we were talking about it before it's even live, but what, you know, peek behind the curtain there. And I wrote it while having COVID. So maybe this is COVID brain here, but if it's basically a, a Robert Covington for Nerland's Noel swap, Maybe New York has to send a protected second, um, top 44 protected second to Portland to get that done. What that move does is it gets Portland out of the tax for this year. And then it sort of gives them this cheap big who they can use in more aggressive pick and roll schemes, at least relative to Nurkic. And Nerlens Noel is, is a pretty good rim protector. Will give you at least more of a rim running threat than I guess Nurkic is, but not really. Nurkic is going to do more stuff in that situation. He's clearly more limited on offense is the point. But he's under contract for 9.2, 9.3 million next season. That's some insurance against Nurkic leaving if you don't want to pay him big money. And it's just cheap enough to where, okay, we have this rotation big. If he's a backup, we're not paying him that much money to the point that we mind having him be a second stringer. Maybe he's even starting for you, but that's someone who gives you 20 to 25 minutes per game. And again, I think Portland, knowing this season is about to be punted on, it seems like you want to get out of the tax. And a team like the Knicks really just needs more two-way wingish players because there's RJ Barrett for them. And that's really it. Uh, unless you consider Quentin Grimes a huge part of their immediate outlook this season. Uh, Covington can come in, come off the bench, probably get some real minutes for them. I don't think he fixes their defense, but I think he opens up different lineup combinations. If Nerlens Noel is not there, you have Mitchell Robinson, you have Taj Gibson. Maybe the Knicks are more willing to play Julius Randle at center with Rocco at the four. Or maybe they're, they're, they're just more willing to explore the Obi Top and Julius Randle front courts there. But that type of a move. Larry Nance Jr. is someone I thought about. I think a team like Charlotte, maybe they would come in with an offer of Kelly Oubre Jr., Kai Jones, and a second 
for Larry Nance Jr., I would give up that much for Larry Nance, if I'm the Hornets, just to be clear. I think Oubre is not going to factor into their long-term future if they want to keep Miles Bridges, P.J. Washington, and Gordon Hayward together. They're already paying Terry Rozier. Oubre is on this sort of placeholder deal, has only part of his salary next season guaranteed. He's had a pretty good year. Shooting is cooled, but he gives you some just defensive options up the positional spectrum that you know Portland could use. Um, and looking at Rocco probably leaving this summer, having the ability to keep Kelly Uber Jr. for, I think it's 12.6 million would be his full guaranteed salary next year. That's something that could interest them. But I don't know why you move Nance because he is also insurance against Nurkic leaving just to have that real big on the roster even if you don't want him playing the five all the time. But I would love to see Nance in Charlotte. So if you're really going to lean into sort of seller's mode, you know, la- moving Larry Nance Jr. is definitely a smaller scale undertaking compared to a, a CJ McCollum or Norman Powell or Damian Lillard, just one relative to what Dame means to the franchise, but just looking at the magnitude of the, the contracts of a Norman Powell, CJ McCollum uh, and, and Dame deal. The other thing I'll say about the Blazers, and I just, it would probably take uh, an about face on Philly's part. They seem to want someone who qualifies as a, at least a fringe all-star in a Ben Simmons trade. I still think if you build out a package around Larry Nance, Norman Powell picks and swaps for Ben Simmons, if I'm Philly, I'm thinking about that because that's still ingredients for another trade down the line. And then Norman Powell helps you out a ton immediately. And I know that you've had some success with Andre Drummond this season with, with George Niang at points, but Larry Nash Jr. would be a hell of sort of a big dev coming off the bench. You could try playing him with Joel Embiid, even though I wouldn't necessarily suggest it in high volume. I would just, given where Ben Simmons' value seems to be, unless there's just a trade that we don't know about out there, Powell, Nance, plus picks and swaps. I, I think that could, you know, f- I don't think it does. It definitely helps the Sixers, but I think that's a, a longer term haul that that you can justify if they're them, where it's, hey, maybe we keep these players and they help and beat immediately, but also between Powell and Nance and then again, picks and swaps, you, you should be able to go out and build a, a different package should a star become available because we don't even know how interested Portland will be in Simmons if Dame ever becomes available, if it's this offseason. Ditto for Washington and Beal, where that would probably be a sign and trade scenario this summer unless he's opting in. How much do they actually want to start rebuilding around Ben Simmons if they're moving Bradley Beal? Just something to consider there. I do expect Portland to do something at the trade deadline because if they're going to shut down Dame, this season is over. And I would think Rocco and Nurkic will be heavily involved in trade rumors. And I would bet money on one of them probably being moved. And I don't think a Nance trade is out of the question. I just don't know that you really need to make that call if you're not doing anything with the rest of your roster outside of Rocco and Nurkic there. Let's go to Johnny. He asks, who has statistically been the best second round pick this season? Uh, it's If you want to go by total points added, which is NBA Matt's home stat, there's Joe Wieskamp of the San Antonio Spurs. Let's sort of filter the minutes out there and say these guys need to have at least played like 40 minutes this season, 50 minutes, whatever. In that case, it'll be Charles Bassey in Philadelphia. I do think the best second round pick this year has been Herb Jones. I believe he leads all second round picks in value over replacement player. The job he's done on defense in New Orleans is just outstanding, and he's he's shouldering a heavy role. This data comes per B-ball index, but among the 576 players that have logged court time and made it to their database, Herbert Jones, Herb Jones, is eighth in matchup difficulty. That is, for a rookie, that's absurd. So that's a, uh, that's a great find for New Orleans right there. If he's going to shoot threes at a league average clip or just give them just maybe some downhill hill juice or something sort of like a big 
role, a, a big man's type role uh, offensively, that's a real rotation player. And it, it's a great find because Najee Marshall has just fallen off a cliff compared to last season. And Trey Murphy, the third, has just not been as big a part of the rotation as we expected, has not played or succeeded as immediately as a lot of people initially projected in the NBA. So um, Herb Jones ends up being a absolutely huge find for New Orleans, who, by the way, have been playing better of late. And if Zion ever does come back, who knows, maybe they can make a push of some sort, but I would be interested to see just, I want Zion to come back to see the different lineup permutations that they build having Jonas Valanciunas there, but also the Herb Jones option. They can play a lot of just wonky positionless basketball, but yeah, for me, the best second round pick has been Herb Jones. And I think statistically for the most part, you could support it, but again, TPA among second round picks who've actually kind of played at least a certain amount of minutes uh, again, 40, Charles Bassey gets that one. Uh, there are, I'm going to loop these three questions together because they have to do with the, the MVP race. We'll start with Ian. He asks, why do people not see Jokic's dominance as a clear number one case for, for MVP? I think, so for starters, I don't know that there's a clear MVP, a clear number one right now. I think Jokic and Steph are kind of neck and neck for that one and two spot. And I, I think about Giannis a lot. There's also KD there. People make a case for DeMar. I'll get to my top of my ballot quickly because that's another question that we we have. So I'll get there soon. But it, I, I do believe that Jokic does get undersold as an MVP. We saw it last year when I think that he became the clear MVP, you know, midway, definitely by the three-quarter mark through the, through the season when you kind of looked at and saw the time that Embiid missed, that LeBron had missed. Um, there was really, I guess, between him and Giannis would have been like the the bigger decision to make insofar as you even had to to make one. I honestly, I don't know that there's a real answer other than how many people are watching the Nuggets. And I hate to play that card because if you're a casual NBA fan, you're a casual NBA fan. Jokic should be among the, the primary megastar draws there. But I understand if there are people that just aren't watching the Nuggets a, a ton. Uh, that being said, the people who have votes, you hope that they are at least paying attention enough to the Nuggets to understand the magnitude of what Jokic is doing. Um, it also could be because the Nuggets just aren't that elite team this year, since you are missing Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray right now. I do think that does elevate his case. Uh, when you look at everyone who has played at least 110 minutes this season, Jokic leads the league in net rating swing. Um, the the Nuggets are, um, they're getting outscored by minus 15.2 points per 100 possessions when he's off the court. They're outscoring opponents by plus 8.8 points per 100 possessions when he's on the court. And so that's nearly a 24-point or exactly a 24-point net rating swing. And those numbers can be misleading, especially when the team is good. It could be him just elevating this really good product. We've seen it with other MVPs in the past. That's not necessarily something to denigrate him with, but I think this sort of speaks more so to how indispensable he is to the Nuggets because they're dog shit when he's not on the court. That being said, Stephen Curry is top five in net rating swing among this criteria as well. He's doing it on a team that's better when he's off the floor relative to how the Nuggets are without Jokic. There is something to be said about uplifting a better team by a similar margin as opposed to taking a team that would be bare bones or just really crappy without you and bringing it to a a semi-good, borderline great level. I don't, this doesn't have to be the end all be all. I don't know how you necessarily distinguish between these two factors, but it makes it really tough. Um, for Jokic, advanced metrics are still going to love him. When you look at uh, regularized, adjusted, plus minus, the single year stuff can be noisy, but no matter how you slice it, whether it's luck adjusted or just the regular RAPM, he ranks in the top five of both. He is, I think, fourth in 
um, regular RAPM and then luck adjusted RAPM. He is second in the league. And so he has the clout to win MVP. I just do think that Steph is a viable candidate as someone who you put him on the floor. And I don't even know that you could say this about Jokic. Just by having him, Steph, on the floor, even if he doesn't have the ball, by virtue of him being there, by virtue of the concept of Stephen Curry existing to the defense, he makes everyone around him better. Where I do think that Jokic needs the ball to have that level of an impact, which isn't really an argument against him, to be clear. Uh, and I will get to who my MVP pick is in a second. Next question comes from Diagon Alley. He says, do you believe Steph Curry should win the MVP award? What are you looking for from the Warriors the rest of the season? Can they win it all? And then Delano Bantenstan asks, who's your MVP? So my MVP right now is Nikola Jokic. I don't know if I'm waiting the lack of help that he's had too much because I don't think Steph should be penalized for having Draymond Green, for having this version of, of Andrew Wiggins, for getting a Gary Payton the second breakout, for the, the Warriors hitting on the margins with the Otto Porter Jr. signing and um, minutes from Nemanja Bielitsa, even just getting flashes of Jonathan Kaminga this season. The Warriors have been, for the most part, the best, no worse than the second best team in the league this season. Uh, I think that Steph is, to me, still the single most valuable offensive player in the league, and that includes Jokic. Jokic wins it out for me because I do think he's more valuable to the Nuggets, even at full strength, um, than maybe Steph would be to the Warriors at full strength because you have Clay, you have Draymond. Maybe Steph wins it out when they're at full strength by a little bit because if you take him off the Warriors at full strength, you know, let, let's take Jokic off the full strength Nuggets. Let's take Steph off the full strength Warriors. Which one of those teams is more likely to be a, a playoff team? I think it's probably the Nuggets. Maybe that speaks to the faith I have in Jamal Murray. Uh, but we've seen what can happen with with Draymond when his minutes are untethered from Steph, or he's not playing with this team that with a team that just has a ton of offensive depth. His game can can really suffer. Where I think Jokic wins it for me this season, at least. You can look at the body of work, how he's uplifted a team that really has just been beset by injuries. Forget the league's health and safety protocols; they've just been beset by injuries at the top more than other squads because Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray are supposed to be, I would say two of their three most important players, but depending on how you feel about Aaron Gordon, let's say two of their four most important players. That's not a Jamal Murray shot. That would be a, a Michael Porter Jr. shot. If anything, Jokic is also just more important to the way that the Denver Nuggets operate on defense. Steph is, doesn't need to be hidden all the time on defense for the Warriors, but they're not going to put him in these super difficult matchups. They have players that allow them to work around that where he's not going to be the player guarding point of attack nonstop. That's not his fault. Again, I think his value on offense speaks for itself and what he does on defense, he's not going to, to hurt you. And that bears out in the on-off splits. Don't cite individual defensive rating, please. We've seen it cited as a reason for why Steph is this two-way player this season. I beg you to, to just don't do that. But Jokic is, he's going to just assume more difficult assignments. Um, when the Nuggets want to go aggressive in pick and roll, which is, uh, I think I was looking at a chart of the most aggressive pick and roll coverages, not the top in the league, but I think it's fairly often he's going to be a part of that. And I don't think that he's a great defender. I think he hovers somewhere between, you know, on any given night, slightly maybe on his best nights, he's slightly above average on his worst nights. He can be detrimental, but he's probably hovering around closer to average or slightly above average for most of this season. I just think knowing that and then the workload he needs to shoulder on offense, it's a it's similar to the argument we would have made for Giannis Antetokounmpo in the past. I don't think Jokic is having anywhere near the same impact as Giannis on defense in those years. Giannis could be a defensive player of the year candidate this season. That's just my logic as of right now, but I really can't decide between Steph and Jokic. This is written in pencil or written in sand, subject to change, What, whatever. I wouldn't, whoever you pick, I'm not arguing. I think other people that deserve consideration here Giannis would be third for me. KD is four. 
I think DeRozan is fifth, but there's also names like John Morant, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, even Fred Van Fleet. Guys, take a look at Fred Van Fleet's MVP cage. They're just his season. Um, he's been spectacular this year. Those are names that spring to mind. People are going to eventually make a case for LeBron James if the Lakers continue to play better. Uh, I don't know that he's in my top seven right now. He's definitely not in my top five, but those are people that could deserve some consideration on the back of the ballot. That's a look, the MVP people complain about talking about it this early. It's a fluid discussion in certain seasons. This isn't just one of those years where it was, you know, set in stone after game 12 or whatever. I, this is a real debate between Steph and Jokic. And I don't think either of them, or I don't think they collectively have run away with the award to the extent that you can say, oh, Giannis or KD doesn't deserve it. And there will be, if the Bulls finish with the best record in the East and DeMar's playing like this, I there will be some people that throw him up there too. So those, those are pretty solidly my top five, but I could see some of that changing. I think, I think in the end, my top three are going to end up being Jokic, Steph, and Giannis. I don't know if it'll be in, in that order, but I do think those, just looking at, I know Giannis hasn't played as much as KD this year, but Barring something catastrophic, I think those are going to wind up being the top three. Again, I don't think this is like etched in marble. Let's move on to something else. This question comes from Sam. Will Lamelo be an all-star this year? That's an interesting question. I, a huge part of it is dependent on, you know, he's not going to be a starter. I think those, that's it. I think Trey Young is going to get a starting spot in these. This is the best way to do it. And look, Let's also just be clear. LaMelo Ball does have an, an all-star case. He is, this season, he's averaging 19.3 points per game, 7.8 assists, even 1.7 steals. I don't think he's a good defender yet. He probably needs to get stronger before he's an a asset. But he's seeing 38.4% of his threes on a higher um, volume per 36 minutes there. Two-pointers, 45.5% down from last year. But he takes some difficult twos when you're just looking at the some of the floaters and even the difficult finishes. If he gets stronger, I think that his clip around the rim will improve. He's up this free throw percentage. Doesn't get to the rim. Excuse me. Doesn't get to the free throw line a ton. He's actually getting there less than last season, but he's shooting 87.6% from the foul line. Um, this guy is a transcendent playmaker and Charlotte's offense is like almost net neutral with him on the court. I think he improves it by one and a half points per hundred possessions, but he's just very much the identity that they assume when, when they're on the court and he is that important and that good. So he absolutely belongs in the discussion. Let's talk about who makes it. The starters are going to be Trey Young. And then if it's me personally, DeMar DeRozan should be a forward and should make it as a, in the front court, sorry, and should make it as a front court starter. And then I would put Zach Levine as the other starter. That being said, I do think people are going to end up shoehorning DeRozan into the guard spots. And I think even the last voting um, showed that. Again, COVID brain, so I didn't look at, I think, the most recent ballots. Let's just... Trey Young and Zach Levine are locks for me. I think the other backcourt lock is Fred Van Fleet in my eyes. Jimmy Butler is going to end up getting in as a backcourt. So that's four right there. If you end up throwing DeMar DeRozan in there as a fifth, I would argue, even though there's the, the wild card spots in play, um, you're guaranteed maybe six at most guard spots. And then it probably comes down between LaMelo Ball, Kyle Lowry, Darius Garland. I don't know if I'm forgetting anybody else here. Uh, of those three, do I think that LaMelo deserves it? Whew. That's an interesting one. And this is something I promise I gave it thought before even, you know, segueing into this podcast. <laughs> I think I would give it to LaMelo. Do I think now that he's going to be 
an all-star. I'd probably say no, just because it'll come down to the coaches picking him. And I think they're probably more likely to go with a Kyle Lowry or Drew Holiday. If it comes between like him and a Darius Garland decision, just I do think coaches favor experience, then maybe they give it to him. I honestly, I honestly don't know. I would pick him among the group that we sort of just listed, maybe just barely. I do think Drew's case is going to be stronger than not. I ultimately don't think he'll get in. I hope he does because his game is so well suited for the All-Star game. I think a lot of it also just hinges on what is DeMar going to enter as? And we'll we'll kind of just have to, to go from there. But that's a, a great, valid question. I'm going to say he should be in the All-Star game and predict that he's not. And I'll probably flip-flop on that like eight or nine more times. Reef asks, will any star currently in the league win six or more rings? Look, LeBron has four. And so I think he's the, the one that you have to say is most likely to get it. Here's, and my, I would just lean towards no, because it feels like, can I imagine LeBron in his age 37 season going to win another two titles from here? Probably not. What is interesting is if the question was, who's more likely to win six titles before they retire? Is it Steph or LeBron? And it comes down to how confident you are that LeBron is on a team for the next few years. Maybe he has maybe Steph has two or three seasons more than LeBron to sort of make up the one ring gap that separates them. Do you trust the war? Let's say if, if Steph's a lifelong warrior, do you trust them to sort of bridge into the future when he's maybe not your number one option or not your best player to assemble a title team around him? Or do you, do you trust the, the Lakers or to, to build that type of team around LeBron? Or do you trust him to go out and find that team that will? That is a tougher one for me. I might mean just because the way the Warriors are sitting right now, like if they hit on James Wiseman, Kaminga, and Moody, like what if Kaminga just just turned? What if one of those guys is a transcendent superstar? It's most likely in my eyes going to be Kaminga, or maybe they're able to flip those guys for someone who's just younger to keep the window open. Is forever the the second best player on that team is Draymond and Clay uh, age, and you're still reliant on Steph. But I might be more tempted to say that Steph is more likely to win six rings than LeBron is, but he already has four. So it's it's a matter of getting to to two, uh, two more. I don't know who I would pick to win more than six or even else to get to six right now because you just look at the league and there there's no just runaway freight train in existence. Even when you sort of look at some of the younger guys who project as the you know, the face of the league, the Bucks, it's not necessarily set up, and I'm not saying Giannis is young, but it's not necessarily set up for them to run the tables in the East. Luka Doncic is one of the most promising young players and the Maverick clearly are not set up to just win titles earlier than not in his career. He may have to wait another half decade or so before he gets that legitimate opportunity. Uh, Trey Young, the tape, the stage is clearly not set in Atlanta for him to go bonkers and win rings. Same with Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, whoever you want in Boston. I mean, we're dealing with all these guys, LaMelo and Charlotte. If you want to go to, to these like newbies, John, even Memphis who, yeah, they've done a great job building around him, but it's hard to spot aside from a Steph or LeBron type of case. And I guess, look, if you're going to say Steph, technically it could be Clay and Draymond getting to six as well. But aside from the Warriors core or LeBron, I don't necessarily know who else you would pick for, for six. If anyone else has an answer and justification, you can get at me on Twitter at Dan Favalli. Melvirk asks, which rookie do you think most deserves to be getting more minutes? I still think the answer is Alperun Shangun. And before his ankle injury in the 10 games leading up to it, he was playing 21.9 minutes per game. That's not enough. I know you have Christian Wood and Daniel Tice that, that really shouldn't stop you even a little bit. Um, I don't know 
you know, I guess you can understand. Uh, maybe I don't understand why Tice is there, but you don't really need to justify playing Tice more than 13, 15 minutes a game, even with his salary at this point. And I think you can also play Shangun a lot with Tice more so offensively. The, uh, excuse me. You could play Shangun with either one of the bigs, whereas I don't necessarily love the Tice would fit and the stats are going to share that out. So yeah, it's, it's still Shangun for me. They also have Usman Garuba on that team, which he's played 100 minutes total this season across 14 appearances. We record this podcast. I get the sentiment of, they just don't think he's ready and he has spent some time in the G league, but you're bad, but just cut him loose. Like, let's see more Usman Garuba. I know that trial by fire isn't necessarily a way to guarantee development, but I do think those reps are important and they do in my eyes have the roster to where he should be, getting more run as someone who can log minutes at the four, maybe even as a, as a small ball type type five and just let him explore you know, what is his defensive versatility going to bring you and f- try to figure out how you can and, and plan to use him on the offensive end. Two more guys that spring to mind. I think Quentin Grimes in New York, just in the flashes that he's shown of the defensive hustle, they need a, he is a smaller wing, but they need a wing of, of that ilk unless they're going to trade for one. And I would, this would be against everything San Antonio always does, but can we cut, Josh Primo loose in there. He just has a lot of wiggle on offense. And I really want to see him get more on ball reps and more uh, just NBA reps in general. I will say I didn't consider guys that you can't really pick where there's not a clear path to their playing time. Like Quentin Grimes can bounce someone in New York's rotation and it shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, But you look at say James Booknight in Charlotte, you can't just, you know, who are you playing him over? in Charlotte and don't say a big, well, you want to, you want to play him over Mason Plumley. Like that's not really going to work. You would have to, I think, trade people out of their spots uh, because he, there's just actual people in front of him that are, that are more effective than he would be. Even if you're not happy with the way Charlotte is performing on a night to night basis. But yeah, those are the ones that stand out. I I still think it's Shane Coon is the most egregious one. I would like to see Grimes might be tough, but like the Knicks are just such a roller coaster ride on a night to night basis. Like, fuck it. Like, let's see more of Grimes. But I do think the Spurs could, even though they have a ton of perimeter players, they have effectively, you know, put Jock, Land- Jock Landell points in front of Thaddeus Young for stretch of the season. Like, we can put, we can afford to see Josh Primo a little bit more. Paolo asks, this is a, a longer one. Call me reactionary, but I just watched RJ Barrett score 16 points in nine minutes. And the only person that could stop him was Julius Randall and his ISOs. What do you think happens first? Randall hands the keys to RJ Barrett on offense or RJ leaves New York. I'm not really suggesting that RJ is a superstar who's better than Randall. It's more so a complaint at Randall taking tough shots and passing mid jump instead of passing it up to RJ. Okay. So we talked about, I think the last podcast we released actually at this point was with Andrew Claudio of Knicks Film School about the Knicks, and we went deeper into what R.J. Barrett's role is and what it could theoretically be. I am with you, Paolo, that R.J. Barrett should have a bigger role on offense. I don't know that it's Julius Randle's fault to the extent that this is on Tom Thibodeau to establish a pecking order on offense. He's decided to give Julius Randle a ton of influence on the offense. I think that went into their initial benching of Kemba Walker in the first place because Tibbs effectively decided that Randall needed to have the ball even more. So if you're going to make that shift, it's going to take a concession on Randall's part or or just a change to the, excuse me, still not feeling great, a change to the makeup of the roster. And I don't know that the Knicks, this was my fear leading into the season, are really built for RJ to plumb the depths of his offense. Has he necessarily done anything consistently enough to warrant more on-ball control? Aside from the flashes he's shown in the past few games where he's really attacked the rim 
in their uh, game against, oh man, I can't remember who it was, but he recently tied a career high for made shots inside four feet at the rim in a game. So when he's aggressive like that, it's easy to really um, give him the ball. And then of course, the couple of games that Julius Randle missed, we saw him get more control. Look, he is below the 40th percentile in ISO efficiency, below the 40th percentile in scoring as the pick and roll ball handler. He's a sub 35 effective field goal percentage on his pull-up jumpers. I understand the the reticence to give him more on-ball control, but this is year three. It's time to sort of understand more of what you have in him, or do you think he's going to be more of just a situational offensive player uh, who's probably going to hurt hurt defenses more off the catch, um, assuming his corner threes start to fall down at a higher clip, and then maybe he'll do some attacking. I think what the Knicks could do to try and you know, see the best of both worlds is untether his minutes to Julius Randle more often. This number includes the games that Julius Randle missed and RJ played. And I think it was only two or three games, but still that's a healthy amount. Fewer than 15% of RJ's possessions this season have come without Randle on the floor. I think that number can stand to be higher. Just completely separate them and stagger their minutes. See more RJ plus bench units. That really shouldn't hurt your rotation at all, especially while Derek Rose um, is out recovering from his latest surgery. So that is something they can and should try. I don't know if they will. We've seen RJ be a little bit more aggressive, even with Randall on the court in the past week or so. And I don't even know if RJ will eventually be the player that can run an offense, run pick and roll. You can trust as a passer, but it's really time to explore the depths of that game. He's extension eligible this summer. You you want to have a better grasp of the ceiling on this player because to me, he still is probably the single most important player in that building. He remains that swing prospect, the one that can really change the Knicks's trajectory. We kind of know what Julius Randle is at this point. We know last year was a flash in the pan relative to, you know, second team, all NBA status. He's probably better than he's been overall this season, but if he lies somewhere in between, you still need that, you know, swing prospect, that swing piece, that player who could develop into, let's say at least a number two on a title team to really change your fortunes. That's still RJ Barrett at this point, unless you think it's Emmanuel quickly or Obi Toppin, a Quentin Grimes, Deuce McBride. I still think barring a trade, it's going to, it's RJ Barrett gives you the best shot of that right now. Um, Burb asks who is better Joel Embiid at the free throw line or Bradley Beal it's look, when you're looking at frequency, there's just no competing with Joel Embiid. His free throw attempt rate, which is the number of free throw attempts per field goal attempt, is 0.577, down from 0.610 last year. Um, that is to say, it's not down much at all. And given the new officiating rules, uh, the whistle has not changed a bunch for him. And he is shooting on his free throw attempts 80.9%, which is down from last year, but he's still above 80% for his career. Bradley Beal is normally better at getting to the foul line, but I think the rule the way or the de-emphasis on certain calls from the officials that's hurt him. His free throw attempt rate is 0.247. That's down from 0.332 and um, pales in comparison to the past few years of, of his career. He is shooting a higher clip at the foul line though. He's at 83.6%. But I think, look, if you, let's just go by straight makes per let's do it per 36 minutes. Bradley Beal is giving you 4.1 free throws per 36 minutes made. Joel, Joel Embiid is giving you nine. So he's more than doubling up the makes there. Just the volume at which he gets to the foul line, he is the more valuable free throw shooter. Riles asks, since no one on the Jazz not named Gobert can stay in front of their man on defense, are there any quick defenders that might be available to them? Riles, didn't you hear? They just signed Daniel House. They fixed their problems. No, I, I think, look, 
they're they're set up to make a trade. And I wrote about this. I think they've shown signs that they might be willing to make a bigger swing. A lot of people have pointed to them hiring Danny Ainge as um, evidence they might do that. He is the king of almost. Uh, I don't know that that infers he would make a bigger swing, but they've even run the ball in the post through Rudy Gay more often during the bench heavy units. And I think that just shows that maybe they're preparing for a change in offensive structure at points. What that means to me is, are they trying to get by without upgrading the backup point guard spot? Because Trent Forrest is not the answer there. Or are they maybe thinking about moving a Joe Ingles on his expiring deal or moving a a Jordan Clarkson, who is not the best facilitator, but gives you a lot of from scratch creation. By process of elimination in the piece I wrote, you can check that out at bleacherreport.com. Just search my name. It'll be one of the two or three most recent pieces I published. I wrote about one player from every team that I think should be traded this year if I were the you know, emperor of the front office, whatever the titles are now. I ended up at Jordan Clarkson just because I think between his age, he has two years at a reasonable number left on his contract and just the from scratch scoring, he might be more interesting. But I also recognize that Joe Ingles is expiring contract. He's been all over the place this year, but he can still shoot, give you secondary playmaking. Maybe he's more appealing to certain teams. A name that I just have circled for them. Um, some people are naming Marcus Smart or them trying to figure out a way to step ladder up to a Harrison Barnes or Jeremy Grant. That would take the market on pretty much all three of those players in my eyes and imploding because the Jazz can't trade. The earliest first round pick I believe they can trade is in 2026. And that's assuming their first two obligations this season and then in 2024 that those two obligations convey. I just, teams are going to be able to beat those offers. Josh Richardson in Boston, they signed him to an extension, but he could still be traded because he didn't get this, this huge raise. And he's quietly had a, a pretty good year, shooting 39 plus percent from three, but he gives you defense from the point of attack all the way up to some of these bigger assignments. And so it depends on what Boston wants. Their season is quickly going off the rails. If you're not going to move Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart, though, you, and if you like, you know, you have Romeo Langford, even Aaron Naismith. Um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm officially higher on Romeo Langford moving forward than Naismith, but whatever. You have minutes to sort of play around with and fill with the wings. Maybe you're willing to move a Josh Richardson for compensation that lowers your tax bill this year. If not, get you out of it. Utah's not going to get them out of it entirely, but uh, lowers your tax bill, maybe pick up some future assets, um, I, or even just juices up your offense. A Jordan Clarkson for Josh Richardson swap works in theory. Maybe you have to send Jared Butler to Boston in that scenario, or even if it's a second round pick, or is it a pick swap? Uh, maybe it's taking back another smaller salary to, to cut their tax bill. And Utah has the rocks, roster flexibility to do that. I don't know if they'd be interested in Clarkson. They probably need someone who's a better passer slash puts more pressure on the rim. I do think he would help their offense. And knowing that Dennis Schroeder is a goner after this season, if not in the middle of this year, should they trade him because he'll be a non-bird free agent. Perhaps that makes him more appealing. They could also have interest in Joe Ingles, just an expiring contract. He is, you know, probably becomes what their second or third best passer on the team once he arrives there can still shoot. I think he's lost a few steps on defense, but they have the talent to sort of cover up for that. Joe Ingles plus Jared Butler for Josh Richardson. Um, maybe you, need, you probably need to take back another salary from Boston because they're not going to want to take on salary in that scenario. Uh, you Could you expand this too? And you know, one of the trades that, that I came up with was Boston gets Joe Ingles, Jared Butler, Memphis's 2022 second, a 2023 swap from Utah. And then Utah gets Josh Richardson and Dennis Schroeder. The leverage Boston has with Schroeder is very minimal because he can just leave after this season, given his non-bird rights. He's just not re-signing for the 120% raise off his sub $6 million salary. 
would it take the 2026 first round pick to get this deal done instead of that swap or that Memphis 2022 second? I, I don't know, but I would consider it if I'm Utah. That's the, that's the framework if you want to swing bigger, but sort of the, the bigger, quicker wing to wrap this up that I think they could target is a Josh Richardson, because I really think he is sort of a, a middle end option that could prove gettable for them. There are other like guys that they could look at, you know, how cheap does Robert Covington come from uh, Portland at this point? I just don't know that he is going to be effective enough in the, in one-on-one situations to, to do any sort of, uh, to make any sort of real impact or move Utah's needle on defense if that's what they're looking for, which is also the challenge for the Jazz here. I, I don't know that you should make a move. I've I've thought about Torrey Craig, which, yeah, he would help situationally, but you want someone who you know can either, can one, crack an eight or nine-man rotation in the playoffs or preferably be a part of your closing lineups. And we know that Torrey Craig probably won't be a part of many closing lineups and would be sort of a, a fringe player when it comes to, to cracking the rotation. And so I don't think they're going to have the juice to get a, a Marcus Smart or Jeremy Grant or Harrison Barnes. And so that's how Josh Richardson feels like a, not even a compromise, but someone who they could feasibly get that drastically improves their title chances. Like if you put, if all you're giving up in terms of immediate players is Clarkson or Ingles, and you're getting Josh Richardson to me, I know this might not be popular with Utah fans, but if that's the player that you're getting for one of those two guys, and there's other stuff, but it's not a, anyone who's mission critical to what you're doing now. I, I think the Jazz become, you know, their top five title favorite right now. I would say top six, the lowest. They 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 probably enter the top three at that point. Perhaps you have Golden State and Phoenix and Milwaukee in front of them still, but who else? I just forget about where they would rank on the ladder. I think getting a Josh Richardson exponentially improves their their overall title chances. And look, for anyone who's saying that they can move Bojan Bogdanovic to make the bigger move, my whole thing is you have a wing, six seven, six eight, whatever, who is averaging over seventeen points per game on better than 60 true shooting, please, please don't overthink this. Like You keep that guy. And I do think your offense is good enough in, in large part because of him, Conley, Mitchell, to withstand the loss of an Ingles or a, a Jordan Clarkson. So that's where I end up with on the Jazz, a promising team that feels a Josh Richardson away from being a borderline title favorite. I am running out of steam here. So let's get through a, a couple of these last questions. Bulls Film Room asks, would you rather have role players be incredibly specialized, like a great three-point shooter, but shitty, like when it comes to, to zone defense, or just good overall? That's a great question. I just, it depends on the level of shitty you're talking about everywhere else. Is this, you have Steve Novak as a shooter, and then like Steve Novak everywhere else? Because no, I'd rather have the overall role player. But is this a a Duncan Robinson or even a Davis Bertans type situation. Uh, I would probably say a Davis Bertans or Duncan Robinson, although Davis Bertans is not making a great case for this, uh, this season. So I'm going to go with the, the role player who is more specialized or great in one area and, and not so much with the others. I know some people might say that Duncan Robinson can be okay in zone defense, giving how Miami rolls it out. So I'll just, I'll throw out the, you know, I'll throw out the Davis Bertans or, you know, does Buddy Heald even fall into this category? Is just an in, in incandescent shooter in basically any method imaginable, but are you going to trust him to effectively create off the dribble? Are you going to trust him to play defense? I would still rather have that player, I think. Uh, you know, his particular price point, when you're getting into salaries and contracts, that's definitely important context, but just in a vacuum, I think I would rather have the elite skill set rather than a more well-rounded or replacement level player type skill set across a bunch of 
different areas. But that's a that was a good question, Bulls Film Room. Thank you for it. Smith asked, which who has the worst defensive three point percentage? Uh, I will say this is I don't know that there's Seth Part now the athletic has gone through this a lot. He calls it Jedi three point defense. That teams, uh, you know, historically they have not been able to actually impact their opponents' three point percentage. So the worst three point defense this year belongs to the Orlando Magic. Both um, they're allowing thirty nine percent shooting from three overall. They're dead last also in above the break three point shooting at thirty eight percent. The worst corner three point defense actually belongs to Chicago. Opponents are shooting. This can't be right. This can't be right. I need to. I'm refreshing this page because this number is just absurd. Nope, Chicago is allowing a post shoot 49.6% on corner three-pointers. Now, you can look at the, the frequency of that matters. They're eighth in the frequency with which they allow corner threes. They're not allowing a ton. But opponents this season have shot 49.6% in the corners against the Bulls, 60 of 121. That is astronomical. I don't know how much that actually matters. But yes, the worst three-point defense in the league overall is Orlando. If we want to just look at the bottom five, Portland's 29th. Miami's 28th, Toronto's 27th, and Chicago's 26th. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to infer anything about how good the defense is overall, because when you look at, you know, Chicago is a top 10 defense right now. Miami is also a top 10 defense right now. So these teams that have been quote unquote bad in allowing three point shooting and uh, even Toronto, I think, has been on the defensive uptick. Have, have they not of late? They're other twentieth defensive officially. So you can be and look. Phoenix, I think, allows a pretty high clip from three as well, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe it was just above the break. No, I, I guess I'm just maybe it was from the corners. No, I'm just I'm making shit up at this point. I thought Phoenix was low. Maybe I was just misreading. I knew I was caught off guard a little bit when I saw it. Uh, so yeah, and I think the best three point defense in the league this season comes from the Clippers the Cavs, the Warriors, the Nets, and the Mavericks. I would argue the Nets specifically, uh, they're in for just some reversal when it comes to their defensive metrics. You look at they've gotten lucky with opponent shooting a ton basically from every area on the court this year. But yeah, I don't you I don't know how much you can watch and then look at how much these teams are doing to maybe prevent corner three point looks or which players are taking the attempts from three. I think defensive shot profiles are more indicative of of defensive talent rather than necessarily three point accuracy. If you're limiting the number of threes your opponents are taking and they're turning into mid range jumpers and it's not, you know, Kevin Durant taking these mid range jumpers all the time. I think that you can infer more about the defense from that, but yes, those are the worst three point defenses on the season. As I just named two questions more. Can I get through them before I just faint? Peja asks, is there a metric to tell if a player is impacting negatively his team's winning odds while having filled the stat sheet? Why do you think this metric should be counted in Westbrook Unix? That's a little fucked up, albeit accurate. Now, I don't even want to say ironically, but um, Unpredictable has a stat called estimated win probability, expected win probability added, excuse me. It is the win probability added one would expect based on a player's box score stats. Westbrook ranks dead last in this stat. If you just go with win probability added, where they're looking at it through the lens, uh, when they're looking at it through the lens of win probability added or subtracted by player due to made slash missed shots, getting fouled, made slash missed free throws, and turning the ball over, uh, Josh Giddy ranks dead last, and Westbrook is second to last. So he comes up theoretically as the worst or second worst 
or second, the most or second most damaging high volume player right now. I think there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Draymond Green does not rank favorably in these stats. Ditto for Julius Randle, although that probably makes a lot of sense this season. There is a point where volume, though, can be damaging to your team. You're going to see a lot of rookies rank towards the bottom of these metrics, but like anyone, anything that's going to say Draymond Green is one of the least impactful players when it comes to winning, I think it's probably weighting what you're seeing on offense a little too heavily. So even if we view this, though, through an offensive prism, you know, Westbrook has been at points fairly damaging for the Lakers. Even through his higher stints, the turnovers has just been an issue. There was a big deal made because he he had zero turnovers for the first time in like 400 and something games, but he came on two assists though. And I'm, I don't want to drag him. I'm just saying there are elements of, of his game that have always been damaging. And if you amplify them, they're going to be even more damaging than usual. So Peja, I know you were being tug in cheek here, but that was a real chat, uh, real stat estimated win probability added and Westbrook ranks dead last in the league. In that stat per unpredictable. Final question from James, a throwback question that has probably been asked a bunch of times, maybe not on this podcast. If the Thunder traded Westbrook instead of Harden, do you think they would have won a championship? That's a tough question because does James Harden becomes James does James Harden become James Harden in Oklahoma City, even if Westbrook's not there? I do not know because he was given the keys to the offense. In Houston, I think if you move Westbrook, if that was even a decision, and I don't think it was a Baca versus Harden, it was never Russ versus Harden in real time. Had you moved Russ, it was probably with the intention of giving Kevin Durant an even larger on ball role. I don't know if it would have allowed you to turn James Harden into the single highest usage player in basketball for his duration, like he was in, in Houston. Now, you can say that Russ was similarly high volume and he played alongside KD for a number of years, but that was sort of known. That was his role. I don't know if OKC ever would have viewed James Harden in that same light, even if he made the transition to star form. And so I think ultimately that they, that I can't view, I can't say if you told me James Harden became James Harden, that he wasn't Houston, in Oklahoma city, I'd say yes, but he also had his own playoff foibles in Houston so there's nothing guaranteed there. And I think we need to look back. OKC, they make it to the finals in 2012 with everybody. And then they were favorites or should have been favorites a number of times after that. Number of times after that, even if you're not factoring in that blown three to one lead against the Warriors in 2016, there was, I think, two postseasons where Russ ended up getting injured. There was one where they had a Kevin Durant injury, then a Serge Ibaka injury. I think the run of bad luck ended, wound up hurting them more than trading James Harden instead of Russ. And I think you could even make that, as all my notifications are going off here, I think you can even make that same case when it comes to you know the Harden versus Ibaka argument. Had they traded Ibaka instead of James Harden and kept those three, you would like to say, well, does that make it more likely that, that Kevin Durant is staying uh, in, in Oklahoma City long-term? Or what if... What if... Um, what if... James Harden was James Harden in Oakland State. Then, of course, you might have viewed them as title favorites at, at that point or assumed that they would have won a title. As I'm just stumbling through this because my, my text messages are blowing up for no reason in particular. I apologize. More of the story is I don't think we can just say that had you traded Westbrook instead of James Harden, the Thunder would have won a title. I think the more effective argument, if you want to make it, would be had they kept Harden, is it less likely that KD would have eventually wanted out? Would it? Would he have clashed less? functionally with Russell Westbrook, uh, with James Harden, then Russell Westbrook. I think you can make that case as, as a yes. 
But I, we also don't know how much Russ really factored into KD leaving. Maybe he was still just graded about the fact they broke up those three in the first place or didn't pay Harden. So I don't think it's so... I, this question, I really think it's 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 a very good thought exercise, but I'm, I don't think that trading Russ instead of Harden would have guaranteed the Thunder a title. Would it give them a better shot at one point? I mean, maybe. It's just hard to envision what Harden's role ever would have looked like in OKC had he stayed there, whether it was with both Russ and KD or just KD. I think the more salient point would be, could Harden have been good enough and gotten along with KD enough or not? Again, let's just say functionally. I don't even want to say off the court, emotionally, whatever. Could he have functionally clashed less or been more of a seamless fit next to Durant than Russ? And if the answer to that is yes, which I think is fine, then maybe it's more likely that both of them stayed in OKC and you would want a title. You could also look at it through the lens of, you know, what happens if, let's say, everything unfolds as planned, but you wind up, Russ is the one that leaves. Uh, you traded Russ, excuse me, then Katie leaves anyway, but you end up getting Paul George and it's a Paul George, James Harden pairing and James Harden does turn into James Harden at this point. That team probably would have given you a better shot at a title. So I don't mean to say that had they traded Russ instead of Harden, OKC would have had a better shot after Kevin Durant left, but that would be another part of this puzzle. I think uh, if you're going to tell me Harden, you know, once those two guys are gone, he would have gotten at least the one season without KD and without Russ. And he had turned into Harden and they go out and they trade for Paul George. Hey, maybe uh, that's, that's still a fun one. I would love to know what everybody else thinks about this. Again, get at me on Twitter at Tampa Valley. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. If you've made it this far in the podcast, if this is your first time listening to us, whatever, consider throwing us the permanent subscription. Give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us out a ton. We're on YouTube, Hardwood Knox. Follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. And again, most importantly, we're wherever you get your podcast. Da- subscribe to us, download every episode, um, help us get the word out there, tell people about it, tell people about it, and also share our promotions of our episodes as well. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I humbly leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, Frank Nielakina. <laughs>